All right. So my guest today, Jamie, is developing a philosophy called sentientism. It's a bit tricky to say, but it's very interesting in concept. Um, it's based on the idea of using evidence and reason to determine what living beings are sentient and then showing compassion for them. And like at a surface level or even deeper than that, this seems like one of those concepts that seems kind of obvious and maybe even hard to argue until you kind of get into the weeds of it. As with most philosophies, as with most ways of thinking, um, as you get into the details, there's aspects of it that become subjective. Like even in this, at a very simple level, how are we defining sentient? How are we defining compassion? What's the underlying rationale for needing to show compassion for sentient beings? Some of that may seem obvious, but I think in the spirit of this show and what I always look to do is to really drill down and understand the true why. What is the meaning? What is the reason behind it? And as I spoke with Jamie, I realized that there was a strong theme within what he was saying in this philosophy of trying to overcome our human nature to live a better, more compassionate, kind of more ideal existence. And in many ways, as we spoke about, this, despite the lack of religious underpinnings in his philosophy, the concept of sentientism seems to be trying to do what so many religions have tried to do. They're trying to convince people that our natural instincts don't always serve us well and that there might be a better way or that there is a better way. So when you think about that and this idea of what does it mean to treat people, to treat all sentient beings well? Um, what does it mean to show compassion? What does it mean to overcome our natural instincts? What does it mean to be a good person in many ways? This was really a fascinating discussion around all of that. Uh, so a big thanks to Jamie for being on and for the work that he's doing. And I hope you guys enjoy the episode. All right, Jamie, thank you so much for being here. Really excited to talk to you today and the topic we're going to talk about. Um, I like to jump right into the conversation. So I'll do that and ask you, what is the value, the belief that is most important to you? So I guess it's really this worldview called sentientism. Um, and I like worldviews because they're often unstated, but everybody has one. And I think they're deeply important. They sort of underpin every decision we take and everything we think about. And this sentientism worldview, I summarize it as evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. So it's trying to ask, answer two of the deepest philosophical questions. What's real and how should we go about understanding the universe? Um, and sentientism suggests we should use evidence and reason and some humility to try and do that. Um, but the second question is just as important, you know, what matters and who matters and mm. what does it mean to lead a good life? And there the clue is in the name, sentientism suggests that we should have compassion for every sentient being as any being that has the capacity to have experiences, to suffer, to flourish, to, to feel, to think, to be conscious. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that's, what a lot of my thinking about value comes back to ultimately is the value of sentience itself and certainly the value of whatever matters to sentient beings. Mm. All right. So a couple of things on that. Firstly, I so much agree. It's almost um, a commercial for, for this podcast in a way, because I say I, I use the term value. Um, you said worldview. I think same thing. The reason I, I have the show and I asked what's the value and I started asking that was much like you just said, I think all of us have some value system, some worldview, whether we admit it or not, whether we're aware of it or not. Because if we're making decisions and taking actions in the world, we're using some frame of reference, some calculation, some analysis to say, okay, this is the action I want to take to get to this outcome. So I completely agree with that. So I love that kind of framing as a starting point. Before we get into the actual concept, because I, I love it and I have a lot of questions about it because I love it. Let me just ask you personally, how did you get to this spot in your journey? Why, why did this become so important to you? I mean, there's some obvious reasons I could I can intuitively guess, but for you to, to dedicate so much to this, for this to be such an important thing for you, what was that journey for you? Yeah, um, I guess a good way of explaining it is my own 
sort of amateur philosophical path. And I'm not a professional philosopher by any means. I've had the pleasure of learning from many um, and reading a bit, but um, my own philosophical journey, it might be worth laying out. So I grew up originally uh, in an Anglican Christian context, really. Um, and religion was never particularly central to my family, but it was just the thing that we in our community did and go to church a few times a year. And it was just a background assumption that, you know, this was what was true about the universe, you know, sort of things about God and heaven and hell and so on and so forth, but also a value set, you know, that defined what good and bad were and what right and wrong were. So it was assumed and it was background. It wasn't particularly central to our lives. And I guess I did the classic thing as a, in my early teens of just reading a bit more widely and thinking a bit more independently and looking a bit more critically at this Christianity idea and turning away from it. And the reason I turned away from it was partly just, you know, an evidence and a reason thing. I just didn't think the story stacked up. It didn't make sense to me that these things were true. It seemed much more likely that you know, gods were the inventions of humans rather than the other way around. So there was just a fact and evidence thing that wasn't compelling, particularly when I compared the story of Christianity with all of the other religions and, you know, non-religious worldviews too. But there was also an ethical angle to it, because while I appreciated, you know, this sense of universal compassion and love that came through a Christian ethic, I didn't really like the sense that the reason you were being compassionate ultimately was because God told you to, rather than because you were just, you know, a good person who cared about others. So that sat strangely with me that ultimately maybe it was more to do with obedience than it was actually you know, caring about others. But also there were some specific ethical practices that flowed through Christianity that I wasn't happy with. And those included wondering, you know, why women and later on why gay people weren't allowed to be priests in the church. Um, why a supposedly perfectly compassionate God would send people to die and, um, and, and suffer horribly in this life but would also send them for eternal torture and hell didn't seem particularly compassionate. So there are a bunch of different things, both sort of facts and evidence, but also ethics that led me to turn away, not just from Christianity, but any sort of theistic mm. worldview. So that led me to, I guess, to being an atheist, uh, at least having a pretty high credence in atheism. You know, Part of having a naturalistic worldview is you're never 100% sure about anything, but you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that these gods, the don't exist but atheism isn't a particularly interesting start really because all it just says is you know i believe there isn't a god or some other people would say i just lack a belief in a deity but either way it's not particularly interesting you know there are so many things we can have beliefs about and this is just one there are very many others um so it you know only relates to one domain of knowledge but also it doesn't really say much about our ethics and our morality apart from the fact that it shouldn't be grounded in a religious way of thinking so that led me ultimately to think about, well, okay, what is this ethical layer that needs to be added on to this naturalistic scientific understanding of the world? And that led me to humanism, which I'd describe in a similar way to sentientism. I mean, basically it's saying, look, we have a naturalistic understanding of the universe. We don't need religions or gods, but just because of good, right? So in a way, a humanist starts might say, look, we, we're committed to believing based on evidence and reason. Um, and we have compassion for all human beings because we're all human and we care about each other. And why not? And it doesn't matter your gender, your sexuality, what you look like, where you come from, your caste, your background, you know, all humans matter. So I really like the idea of humanism because it kept that naturalistic scientific way of understanding the world. 
you know, we don't need any supernatural stuff, but it laid in this really rich universal compassion that, of course, you find in many religious worldviews too, but it did that without needing the supernatural and just said, look, we should have compassion for all human beings. Um, but to lead us on to sentientism, there was a parallel track in my thinking, which was to do with non-human animals, um, partly through the influence of my sister, who was sort of earlier on this track than me. I always had this thing in the back of my mind about how we treat non-human animals, um, and that led me in my 20s to go vegetarian and more recently to go vegan and the reason i've taken those decisions which really are just philosophical stances in their own right is because you know i wanted to do what i could to avoid harming killing and exploiting non-human animals um and the reason i care about them is actually the reason i care about humans right so i used to think that the reason i care about humans is because we're all the same species it's like some sort of weird species solidarity right so we should care about all humans because of our species but the more again i learned about the science of what it means to be a human animal and the tree of life and how we've evolved it became clear to me that the reason i care about other humans isn't because we share the same species it's because other humans can suffer can flourish can feel things you know they care about things for themselves right? that's really why i care about other humans um, so that realization of hold on, there's a problem in humanism, right? It's so focused on our own species. Maybe there's a there's an issue there. Maybe that's an arbitrary boundary. Maybe we're excluding a lot of other beings that can suffer and flourish too. That line of thinking led me to vegetarianism, but then ultimately to veganism. Um, and in a way, you could say that sentientism is an attempt to try and bring those two lines of thinking together. And hence this idea of saying, look, we should believe based on evidence and reason as opposed to faith and revelation and dogmatic beliefs mm -hmm. um you know that naturalistic grounding is the best way of understanding reality but when it comes to thinking about who matters in our ethical considerations every sentient being should matter any being that can feel pain can feel pleasure that can love that can care that can experience anything should matter so in a in a way there were these two paths that were originally somewhat independent one was sort of epistemology and then adding humanistic ethics. And there was this other train of thought about what about all the non-humans? Shouldn't they matter too? And this idea of sentientism in a way brings them together. Mm, mm, uh, that, that was my sort of slightly strange path. Then. But, the, no. but the reason I think it's important is because, you know, there are so many ways you can try and make the world a better place, right? There are specific causes you can work on, intrahuman ethics, non-human animal ethics, um, you know, transition to end poverty, working against inequality, working against harsh discrimination, against animal cruelty. You know, there's so many different practical things you can do. But it links back to what you mentioned at the beginning is that underneath every human decision and certainly underneath, I think, every human-caused problem, mm. at the very root, if you say, right, why are we doing that thing or why are we causing that problem? It seems to me that either there's a failure of ethics or a failure of compassion. You know, we've just decided that some other group of humans or some other group of non-human sentient beings just don't matter or can be discriminated against in some way. And we're very familiar with that sort of ethical struggle, right? There are certain groups of people who just don't care about other groups of people. So we know that that's an ethical failing, but that's only one sort of failing. There's another problem where even compassionate people can do terrible things if they've just got stuff wrong about the world right so that's why it's led me to say well it's really important that we have this universal compassion for all the sentient beings because at least that guarantees we're not going to exclude any being that can care being that can experience being that has interest right at least we're not excluding anybody so it rejects all exclusionary ethics really 
But it's just as important that we have a really solid epistemological grounding that at least gives us the best chance of being right about the world. Because even very compassionate people, if they think a voice in their head or a deity is telling them to do something awful, or that they've um, you know, been told, for example, that non-human animals don't have souls, so they can't suffer, or you know, the list goes on. Like there are so or they've been taught that um, you know, vaccines cause more harm than the illnesses you're trying to cure, right? These aren't ethical failings. These are just getting stuff wrong about the world that can lead that's people crazy. to cause enormous harm. Yeah. yeah. So that's the idea, right? You need a really strong epistemological basis and then that universal sentiocentric compassion that cares all mm. about sentient mm. beings. So it's a it's a great explanation of it and laying it out. And I think kind of setting the framing of it is important for the conversation. So let me ask one more question in, in that lens, just for people listening and for myself, frankly, like what, if we make this practical, how, how far do we take it? And I, and I don't ask this in like a glib way. I ask this genuinely, like if you practice this in its fullest form, do you not have animals as pets? Is there certain treatment? Like what, what, what exactly is the um, right interaction we should have with other animals and other sentient beings? Um, like, is there, is there a hard line on some of this that everybody should, every animal should be treated exactly the same? Every animal should be treated as a human or is there some gradation to that? Yeah, so I'll, it'll sound like I'm judging the problem but I will come back to answering sure. your question. So one of the, I think one of the powerful things about this sentientism idea is it's very broad and it's very basic and it's very pluralistic. You know, it's well grounded philosophically, right? More technically, it's uh, naturalistic epistemology and a sentiocentric moral scope. But at the same time, it's something that anybody on the street can understand, you know, believe based on evidence and reason and care about all sentient beings. It's pretty straightforward. And I think almost everybody these days understands what sentience means. And if you explain it as, the ability to feel and have experiences, then everybody gets it, right? It's, my experiences are important to me. This is just recognizing that other beings' experiences are important mm -hmm. to them, right? So yeah. it's pretty easy. But it's in a way, it's also very irritating because it is so broad and pluralistic. So it doesn't pretend to resolve all the difficult ethical trade-offs we might find in real life. It doesn't pretend to give you easy answers to all of the weird philosophical thought experiments and edge cases that people dream up. It just tries to set that baseline. Mm. So it doesn't say, here's a list of things you have to believe if you have a naturalistic way of understanding reality. It just says you have to have a naturalistic way of understanding reality, right? So use good quality evidence, good quality reasoning. And we may well still disagree, right? But at least if we've agreed about how we're gonna work out how to believe and set up credences, at least we can have a productive conversation. And we will, and we do still disagree but we've agreed the method of epistemology. And the same is true on the ethics front, which is to your point, which is, it just says look, we, sh we should have compassion and moral consideration for every sentient being. And that leaves a lot of space for different approaches. So to your point, there are some people who'd say, look, I'm on board with sentientism. And what that leads me to believe is that basically every sentient being should be treated sort of in an equal mm. way. Um, and, uh, but it, but others will say, well, we should have compassion for every sentient being. But what that means is taking their interests into account and their experiences into account. And those interests and experiences are very different. So it's entirely appropriate. We might treat different sentient beings in different ways. Other people, again, to another one of your points about you know grading, would say, look, this, this sentience thing isn't like an on-off switch where you're either 100% sentient or you're 0% sentient. It's probably something both in an evolutionary context and even in a developmental context mm -hmm. is something that happens gradually over time. And that would probably lead you to think that maybe there might be different degrees of sentience. 
and it's probably just not one scale either right you can even in our own lives our own experiences are breathtakingly multi-dimensional and you know can go all over the place we have all sorts of different experiences that's certainly true when you think about the entire human species when you go beyond the human species the range and variety of types of experience just explodes even further right so it's it's a massively complex multi-dimensional messy thing so but within that maybe it does make sense to think that there are some beings that could have a higher degree of sentience and maybe that could lead you to fairly having a higher degree of moral consideration so there's enormous amount of variety there it also means you can apply all sorts of different ethical systems so it depends how much you know your listeners are into this stuff but there's all sorts of different ways of thinking about ethics so you can have a utilitarian approach which is thinking about the well-being of entities as being utility that you try to maximize you can have a deontological or maybe a rights-based approach that thinks about others traditionally humans but i would say sentient beings being ends in themselves that warrant having rights and there might be certain rules about how we uh, engage with each other that we should try not to break um, there are feminist care ethics ideas which are more based on a sort of relational approach about caring for each other and and recognizing need and vulnerability um, and there are virtue ethics where people are saying look of course we're aiming at good outcomes ultimately but you know ultimately what each of us needs to do as an individual is to try to be virtuous and you can argue over what the lists of virtues are right but um, and and i'd argue that you can apply any of those types of ethical systems in a sentientist way as long as you're seriously including every sentient being in your moral consideration so you can think about you know a virtue of kindness has to extend to all sentient beings you know a, a feminist care ethic has to recognize the vulnerability of non-human sentient beings as well as humans you know a deontological ethic would recognize that non-human sentient beings have interests and have needs and our ends in themselves and therefore you know maybe we should grant them rights and not needlessly harm them and a utilitarian you know absolutely would recognize that the well-being and the, the suffering and the flourishing of any sentient being counts as utility and it matters right. so again it's in a way irritatingly pluralistic but i think that's part of the point because for me making sure we get our scope right so that we don't exclude any sentient beings is actually more important than whether we pick a virtue ethic yes. or a utilitarian ethic or yeah. a care ethic, right? The most important thing is we don't exclude anyone that should matter. Yeah. Um, and there's a danger in that pluralism because it might mean that the edges of this get so fuzzy it loses any purchase and it loses any meaning. And that's another thing I'm really keen to, to resist and the way I do that is just by insisting on that we hold to the definitions of certain words, right? We don't let those definitions slip. So when I'm talking about, you know, if I have moral consideration for you, or I care about you, or I have compassion for you, even if it's a minimal compassion, you know, you're someone with, you know, we've just met, we don't really know each other, you might be someone on the other side of the world, uh, we might not have much of a chance to interact, right? Even if I have a basic level, minimal level of compassion for you, that still has to be meaningful, right? And and the baseline I'm suggesting in terms of this question of ethical demandingness, you know, how far should we go? Should we all sell all of our worldly possessions mm. and donate to global charities and sacrifice our entire lives for the happiness of others, right? Or should we be completely selfish and egoistic and, you know, I'm the only thing I'm the only thing that matters right in that question of demandingness and how far should we go I'm suggesting what I think is a really minimal simple non-demanding baseline which is that that at least we shouldn't want to needlessly 
harm or kill any other sentient being. So we'd like to go further than that, right? If if I was up saying, well, what would I like to be, how would I like to be treated? That that would be a good starting point, right? I wouldn't want you to needlessly harm or kill me. I, I might also want you to help me if I'm in need or to support me in various other ways. Fine, we could go further, but the baseline, the absolute minimum for the words compassion and caring and moral consideration to mean anything surely has to include, look, I wouldn't harm or kill you without a really serious justification. So to finally answer your question, that does come back to some quite clear practical implications for me about you know, our choices and our behaviours, because I'd suggest we should try and put that into action. And the fascinating thing here is in my conversations with thousands of people about this topic, um, many people agree, at least in principle, with this sentientism idea, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to have beliefs that are grounded in evidence and reason? And who would want to needlessly harm a non-human sentient being? It seems sort of intuitive and sort of tautological and hard to argue with and pretty obvious, right? Surely most people would agree with that. But actually what happens is that we get socialised, and you might even say indoctrinated, into believing things that are not well-grounded in evidence and reason, and there are so many examples, right? Um, and some of them are quite innocuous, some of them are even fun, some of them are explicitly and obviously harmful, some of them are widely socially accepted, and some of them are today seen as deep problems of misinformation and disinformation and conspiracism and, and so on. So there's an entire world of spaces where people absolutely do believe without a good grounding and an evidence and reason. And a similar thing is true on the flip side, because if you say to, you know, a child, would you want to, for example, kick the rescue puppy at my feet just for fun? The obvious answer is no. But our social norms have come to explain to us that some of the harms and the killing and the exploitation we do, oh, it actually is needed. Mm. And maybe some of those sentient beings shouldn't really count as others that we should care about um so while you have this you know quite common sort of theoretical agreement what it really bumps up against isn't science and it isn't philosophy it's mostly social norms and i guess the classic case study here the, and the central case study where a lot of the conversation ends up is is when you think about the farming and the agriculture of non-human sentient animals because that is um you could come at it from two ways right on the one hand it is deeply normal widely expected accepted has um, you know history that goes back thousands of years has clearly been industrialized very aggressively uh, more recently in human history um uh, and it's deeply and powerfully normal in every respect and many people see it actively as beneficial so that's that's the way most people will think about animal agriculture at large um but when you uh, take this approach that I'm suggesting that is very common in intrahuman ethics where we simply say surely we should consider the perspective of the other right I should think about what it's like to be you and take that seriously into consideration and genuinely imagine what your life course is like and at the very least not want to harm or kill you without uh, a serious reason as soon as you do that in the farmed animal context it's like the blinkers fall away and you see this industrial scale global exercise with something that approaches a degree of moral shock and horror um, and the juxtaposition between those two views 
is is stark and and psychologically and socially difficult to deal with. Um, but I think it's a it's almost the perfect case study of where ethical theory and philosophy and science and the understanding of the reality of the sentience of these beings clashes so powerfully with social norms. And in all the conversations I've had in my own you know, podcast on YouTube, that's been one of the strong themes that's come through is that you know, science has an overwhelming consensus that non-human animals uh, are very broadly sentient, that they can feel pain, they can feel pleasure, they can have joy, they can have relationships, you know, that there is really no deep difference in a scientific sense between the puppy at my feet, a pig in a factory farm, and even, you know, maybe an 18-month-old human child, right? In a scientific sense, the nature of their experience, rich parallels, because we all evolved in a very similar way, right? We're all part of this family tree. So the scientific consensus is there that sentience is very widely spread. The philosophical consensus is more tricky because anthropocentrism, this idea of you know, humans being the center of the entire world, some even call it human supremacy, is very powerful that it affects philosophy too. But there is also an emerging strong philosophical consensus that sentience is what should matter when we're thinking about who matters, right? So that would say, well, we, the scientific consensus is clear that non-human animals are very broadly sentient. The philosophical consensus is saying, look, all sentient beings should warrant moral consideration. That would lead you, if animal agriculture didn't exist today, to a stance in which you would never start it, right? You'd never start it. If it didn't exist today, I don't think anyone could come up with a reason to start it. Mm. Yet because it does exist and because we're socialized into thinking it's acceptable, even desirable, that's the challenge and that's the clash. Mm. Um, and, and what we will do as humans, because, you know, going back to the epistemological point, right, we, like, we all like to think we're rational beings to some degree. We use evidence and reason. If the evidence changes, we'll change our view. But actually, an enormous amount of our own human psychology, and I speak for myself too, a lot of my own intellectual capacity, a lot of people's intellectual capacity, actually goes into post-rationalizing the things we want to believe, the things that our society tells us yeah. are true, the things that we need to show we believe to maintain our group identities and to stay in with our friends and family and wider society. Um, and again, it's, it's fascinating because you can ex explore those biases and those you know risks to human thinking and those problems with critical thinking in so many different domains that cause problems today but it does feel to me like animal agriculture is like the perfect crucible yeah it is because it's because it's in what it's one of those spaces where even the professionals and the public intellectuals and the thinkers whose entire life mission is focusing on talking about critical thinking and skepticism and rationality still have you know most of them still have how we treat non-human animals is like a sort of kryptonite blind spot. It's absolutely fascinating. Well, so it's... it's sorry, it's, that was a massively long... No, 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 it's good. As I said, I, I, to me, the way to have these conversations is you have to get the information out there and then you can start to explore it and understand it. And I think far too often, you know, in society, people just want to jump to, you know, the sound bites and the little bits rather than hearing it in its form. So I appreciate that that laying it out. And I think, Jamie, as I, as I hear you talking, like, well, firstly, I'll say I appreciate, I think you've said a couple of times, like, like through reason, through understanding, we're trying to get to the root of it. We're trying to actually see what's there, what's the truth of it. And, and that, to me, that has to be the approach. And when we do that with this, I think there's layers to it, as you said, and, and the, the agriculture example of it is a really good one where you can move through layers of like, is it okay? Is it not okay? And you can start thinking about nature and you can start thinking about all different things. I think at the root of it, 
what what I what I hear, and I'm curious your thoughts on it is it's almost like you talked about religion before, right? And and this idea of like um, you know, the stories that were told and gods and all that. And there's an argument to be made that the the function of religion was in some ways connected to what you're trying to achieve with sentientism. Um, if I could say that word, and I'll, I'll probably get it right once out of every 10 times I say it here. But <laughs> um, in some ways, it's there is a human nature, if you will. There, there is a there is a natural way in which we, the world, functions, right? Somebody could say, you, you asked the question, so let me, let me hit that directly, of what, would we ever go back to farming animals? Would we ever go back to slaughtering animals and eating them for ourselves? Like, what reason would we have? I could see somebody saying, well, if we look out in nature, we would see other animals doing it and say, well, maybe there's reason for us to do it. So there's this natural argument that says, but what I think you're getting at is a very evolutionary process, literally and figuratively, of we as humans, once we gain this, this gift, perhaps, of consciousness, we had the ability to look at nature, observe it, and say, there's things we like about it and there's things we don't. And religion, in some ways, you can make an argument is you needed something that powerful, the, the the risk of eternal damnation to get people to go against this natural instinct, which is so inbred in us to say, no, 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 use your consciousness, use this gift evolution has given us to not just act in our in our natural way, to actually make decisions that we think are rooted in reason and compassion in a way that makes more sense. Now, I think what we've seen over time, it sounds like you and I would agree on this, is that religion maybe isn't the best tool for that. It brings about all these dogmatic beliefs. It still allows for human nature to come in and greed and selfishness and self-centeredness and, and all these different things, which that's not it. But but at the root of it, what it sounds like this is, is a, is a new evolution of that, which is to say, maybe there's a better way to get people to realize we don't just have to act in our natural form. We don't just have to give in to what that is and hunt and eat animals or not care about living things, or be in this kind of scarcity mindset where I have to protect me and mine and my tribe. And I think there's a lot of power in that. I guess the question I ask, and this is, is back to, as I mentioned in the pre-show, that cynical perspective, just to question it is, um, what do, do you think that's possible? Do you think we can actually overcome that nature, overcome what is ingrained in us and embedded in us to actually do something different, to live a different way, to say we don't have to do it the way we've always done it, we don't have to do it the way our ego, our subconscious, our mind pulls us towards. Do you actually think that's something we can achieve? Because as you said, I think in theory, the concept, so many people would say it's beautiful. It's the world we should live in. But unfortunately, it's not the world we live in. So it's unrealistic to expect to get there. I assume, obviously, you have optimism. But what gives you the reason for that optimism that we can overcome that? Because arguably, religion couldn't do it. God, the fear of an all-powerful being in the sky who will send us to eternal damnation did not get us there. Why do we think this will get us there? So, I, you know, I have a guarded optimism and, and some of it comes from the fact that I don't think we have this sort of baseline biological brutal nature that we need to mm. fight against. I actually think there's a lot of compassion and naturalism mm. already baked into that biologically evolved nature too. And, and it's interesting to think about that from the context of, you know, even pre-human evolution. If we go back as far as the, you know, the early Cambrian when many scientists think the first sort of simple animals that maybe were sentient started to exist. Um, not long after that, I think you can imagine non-human animals in a way always had a naturalistic epistemology, right? They didn't believe things that were made up or fabricated. No one was telling them lies. Uh, you know, they probably just didn't have the concept of unfound belief or revelation or the supernatural, right? But in a way, they were using a, a basic 
sensitive scientific worldview. Like you're using your senses, you're exploring your environment, you're engaging with others, you're understanding yourself and the senses you're getting from your body, right? You're using the evidence and you're reasoning about that to try and help you survive and procreate. I'm not pretending they had a formal epistemology, right? But in a sense, non-human animals always had, and I think today still have a sort of naturalistic grounding for how they try and build an understanding of the world and how they navigate within it. But I think the roots of a lot of the compassion were there too. So long before humans ever came on the scene, non-human uh, animal mothers cared about their offspring and vice versa. And even beyond the family, you know, there are groups and sort of tribal structures and, and, and intensely social animals that I think it's scientifically factual to say they care about each other. Right? So, so I don't think, you know, our, our sort of, there's this sort of brutal raw biological nature that we need to fight against. I think the roots of naturalistic epistemology and a compassionate ethic are already there to some degree. Um, so, so I don't think the fight is as hard as it might be, right? Because I don't think we're fighting against a sort of evil starting point. We're fighting with some of the raw materials already, you know, ready for us and latent. Yeah. I think the other thing that gives me hope is, as you said, there is this sort of latent human ethic, you know, however our brains and our societies have evolved, that has led us to recognize that ultimately, on, in general, despite all of our flawed belief systems, it's pretty good to understand reality accurately. And that, you know, compassion, caring about others are good things. And particularly if it doesn't, there's no downside to us, right? Why, why not? Um, so that latent ethic, which I described as people sort of agreeing with sentientism in theory, um, is there. And if we can just make it socially and practically easier for people to tap into that latent ethic, I think change can happen quite quickly. So speaking personally, one, you know, as an example, one of the reasons I went vegetarian and probably another, I don't know, 15 something years before I went vegan, the reason I stopped at vegetarianism was, and this is a little bit embarrassing to say, I think it was looking back, a calibration about the level of social weirdness I was willing to take on. So my ethical stance at that point should have led me to forego all animal products because in simple terms, the production of milk, cheese and eggs is, you know, often as brutal, sometimes even more brutal in the production of meat. So there's something different about, you know, physically having a piece of an animal on the plate that I think leads many people to vegetarianism. But actually, you know, the milk, cheese, eggs and leather and the other products are produced through very similar egregious harms right so there was no logical reason for me to stop there the reason purely was about you know, how weird was i willing to be and at the time vegetarianism was quite weird and veganism was really weird right <laughs> and and that's the only reason that's the only thing that held me back and i think mm. i think you'll find that for many people today is that they'll you know if you talk about how they about their companion animals or they talk about even how they you know if they experience a wild animal that's injured how they feel and what they think they should do ethically in that situation is completely in line with the sentientist ethic mm -hmm. and yet i'll sit down at lunch and have a being that's you know they've essentially paid to have that being sexually abused and separated yeah. from its family and often mutilated with that anesthetic and imprisoned and then killed right now, but we do that without a moment's thought and this is the same individual with the same ethics so if we can i i think if we can make things practically easier and socially easier and we can see that social change happening at you know, month on month already, we can be quite surprised at how quickly humans can change. You know, we're all 
it's, it's very frustrating when you're driving for any positive social change movement. They always feel too slow and it feels like there's so much social inertia and they're often vested interests pushing back and challenging and trying to block you. And uh, But actually over human history, you can, in some situations, see tipping points and turning points happen where we've made progress on certain social justice issues that no one guessed we'd make at the time. And then you look back 20 years later and you're shocked at how far we've come. Mm. And none of those things are finished, right? It's, the journey isn't ever completed, but I've maintained that optimism that, and that sort of sense in humanity that we can guide our ethics using our rationality. We can guide our beliefs using our rationality. And we do want to be ethical. We do want to be good people. We do want to have consistent ethics that we can hold to. Are we the reason cognitive dissonance is studied in psychology is because it's uncomfortable right it's not an excuse it's something you're supposed to work to resolve and um so I, there's hope there because i think yeah. yeah we 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 want to be better right and instead of I, the difficulty is i think most people when you're thinking about an ethical topic think backwards right so you start from saying i'm a good person mm. the people around me are good people the things we do must be good things now i'm going to explain why that's the case and we just need the bravery to flip around the other way and go, okay, let's start from a blank slate. Let's think about all of the sentient beings involved. What would it really be like to be them? And if I want to be a compassionate person, if I want to understand reality accurately, you know, how should I now behave? And that can be very difficult because, as I said, the blinkers can sometimes fall away. Yeah. And you come to this position where you feel like you're a bit of an alien on a strange planet looking around a society that thinks certain things are normal that are just egregiously horrific. And I'm not just talking about the non-human animal space here, right? There are so many intrahuman ethical things where sure. when you look at them with clear eyes, it's like, how, how the hell are we still doing this? Right? How are we still accepting this? Well, um, you're, yeah. you're hitting it too, Jay. Like uh, the theme to me, the thread throughout this is this, this battle, this battle between wanting to be ethical, wanting to be compassionate. And, and I don't disagree with what you're saying about, it's not that like there's there's human nature or, or the naturalistic way, and then there's ethics and compassion. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive, but yeah. I do think there is generally conflict and tension between those two things. And as we become more evolved, as we understand better, as we use reason and rationality, we start to see the, the delta between those more. And there's this constant battle that we're all going through to try and figure out where do we sit on the spectrum? How do we continue to act ethically and compassionately when we're also being pulled in this direction? And it's very much just that battle that's at play. And I think for that reason, and I very much agree, reason, logic, rationality, that should be our guide in many ways. And, and that can encompass more than just mental thinking. There could be feelings involved in that. That's There's a reason yeah. to understanding suffering and feelings and sadness and pain and all that. So it encompasses all of that. But when you use that as your tool, I think... The challenge becomes it, it you, you now frame it in a way in which, okay, it's it's what what am I trying to get to? What do I know? What are my tent poles that I know are true? So that when I use reason, it can guide me to what I want to get to, right? Especially if I'm trying to fight this battle of being more ethical and compassionate and being pulled away from kind of that egoistic nature to say, you know, do what's right for me. You need to have a really strong reasoned argument to pull you towards ethics and compassion in some ways, right? To exactly to the person that's sitting there eating that butchered animal. But if they saw an injured animal in the street, they would try and help it and take care of it, right? The problem I often run into, and this becomes a philosophical question, is if we don't know, right? If we don't actually know why we're here, what the purpose of humanity is, what how we're supposed to live, right? 
even what you're explaining is us using our minds to say, we, we are saying what we think we're supposed to be doing. We think we should be compassionate because we feel suffering and we know that's bad. Therefore, if another sentient being feels suffering, it would seem logical to believe we should try and minimize that. But there is no God, as far as we can tell, there is no blueprint that's been handed down to us that says this is actually what life is so that we can say with confidence, yes, that is the right way for us to move forward. And as soon as you remove that, you leave room for interpretation, you leave you leave room for subjectivity. So even if as to where you were before, somebody in concept says, yes, I believe in compassion, reason, etc. But maybe their view of compassion is to say, I might have to hurt that other being because it helps all these other beings. Or maybe this act actually isn't hurting them in some ways. Even the golden rule, which I think is beautiful in many ways, do unto others as you want done to you. There's an implicit assumption in that, that how I want to be treated is how other people want to be treated. Yeah. So now maybe I don't think I'm harming somebody because this is how I want to be treated, but I am. Now all this gray comes in and it starts to feel like, well, how can I ever get people at scale? to actually embrace this idea when I can't give them concrete reasons why they should. It's really yeah. gotta be based on their own ability to just think compassion and ethics is the most important thing in the world. And I think there's a good case to be made for that, but there's no definitive case to be made for that. Like maybe this whole thing is completely meaningless. Maybe it's maybe there is a God out there who's just a complete asshole who's playing a sick twisted yeah. trick on us. And this is yeah. all right. Or maybe we're meant to all suffer in this world because then it's beautiful in the neck. Like who knows? Without a definitive understanding, how can we be? How can we get people to actually do this unbelievably hard thing to buy into what what you're trying to bring forth? Which again, I think is a beautiful thing. I think we should. I just think it's really hard. Yeah. So, in a way, that that line of thinking, I think, is a little bit of a hangover from religious thinking. Mm, so maybe. one of the things that's fascinating, even in you know depends which country you're in, right? But even in a worldview where people are in a more sort of secular mindset where they've moved away from a religious worldview, there are some hangovers, I think, from religious worldviews. And this is, I think, an interesting one where you start from the assumption that for ethics to be well-grounded, there has to be some external reason for it. So you're starting with an assumption. There has to be some external perfect reason for a thing to be right or wrong. And if that external thing isn't there, then there can be no basis for ethics. Mm. And that is a religious way of thinking. Yeah. But many yeah. people who aren't religious have still got in their heads somewhere. And, and once you've posited the need for that thing, then you're desperately scrabbling to recreate it. And I think... Can I ask sense. a question on that, Jamie? Which you may get to. But yeah, yeah. Even if you... Well, let's remove external reason. Let's just say reason, right? Yeah. If, if reason and, and rationality and logic is meant to be the guide, I think in that structure, there has to be a reason to say, this is the thing we should do. Do you feel confident, like, is, is the argument that you're making, and I'm not disputing this, I'm just laying it out, yeah. that we do have a reason. Because we know what suffering feels like, and we know there are other beings that feel suffering, that is the reason. That is the root, first principle level reason as to why ethics, compassion is the right decision. Or is there something underneath that where we have, like, because somebody could say, I have, I have a brother who we have conversations like this all the time, and I'm channeling him right now. He would say, why? Why is it bad for yeah. that other being to suffer? Like, I can understand at a, maybe a, a higher level, a more superficial level, for lack of a better word, why that seems wrong. But at the root level, I can't say for sure that that's a bad thing. Yeah. And if I can't say that for sure, then the whole thing falls apart. Again, not saying yeah. that's true, but how do you how do you think of that? No, it's, it's a common challenge. And again, it's a common challenge on, you know, much intra-human ethics as well, right? Yep. That ultimate question of why. And in a sense, it might just be a choice, right? That that might be it, right? There may, there may no, not be some 
ultimate perfect reason that cannot be challenged, right? It might just be a choice. Um, so it's another thing that sentientism is irritatingly neutral on. So there are sentientists who will say they're moral anti-realists, so they don't think there is some external mind-independent reason mm. for ethics. It's, it is just a choice. There it's are so um, others who are moral realists who do think that moral truths actually exist and, you know, independent of our existence and there are things we can discover and then should follow. Um, and there are others who, you know, personally, I'm sort of a bit fuzzy in the middle because um, I'm not a moral realist in the sense that I don't think morality existed before sentient beings existed, right? Ultimately, this is just a physical universe churning away with atoms and quarks and, you know, multidimensional Hilbert space vector or whatever it is, right? It's, yeah. there's, there's no ethics in that, right? It's just the operation of stuff going on right? yeah so so in that cosmic sense there is no right or wrong right but as soon as sentient beings do come into existence and individual sentient beings experience valence they feel good things they feel bad things i'm very comfortable linking the good and the bad of experiences to the good and bad of ethics so for me mm -hmm. Um, that's a link I'm pretty comfortable making, right? And that that leads me to the idea that if I feel something good and someone has made me feel good, then they've done a good thing. And if someone's made me feel bad, then I feel bad, and that is a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. But so it almost becomes definitional, you know. And, I, and in a way, I do think that morality really is just the choice to care about others. And yeah. if you have a worldview that doesn't care about others, that's just amoral. And if you have a worldview that actively likes harming others, that's immoral. immoral. And, and I can't give you some perfect reason why you shouldn't be immoral, right, um, in some cosmic sense. Um, but I can explain why it might be better for you, even selfishly, mm -hmm. if you find a way of engaging that shows compassion, that enables collaboration, that enables cooperation. Um, mm -hmm. And ultimately, if you do choose to be immoral and we've chosen to structure our societies in some way, hopefully the rest of us will constrain you. Right. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, <laughs> we can bring deterrence and protection of others and justice to bear for those who genuinely don't want to be moral. Well, fine, we're going to constrain you in some way. So, yeah. so there's, there's a bunch of different ways. But I think it's interesting because even if you're a moral realist or even if you're a religious person and you say, look, God says it's wrong to cover the thy neighbor or make graven images or whatever, you can still say, OK, but why should I do that? Mm -hmm. Even if you think you found the the ultimate moral truth people will still say yeah but why i'm just not going to do that so yeah. I, I think it's a little bit of a you know it's like a, a search for something that doesn't even have to exist in, yes. in that sense it's funny in that ironically i'll say what you're explaining which is which is in many ways a secular perspective of it's just a choice to say this is the right thing to do I, I can see a strong argument if you trace it all the way back to the root of religion when it first started it's the same thing it's whatever in you, in any human being says, I have no reason to care about this other living being, but I'm going to do it anyway. In some ways, to me, that's probably the closest thing to God that there is. And I think that idea is probably what gave birth to the religion as we know it. This idea of having no reason to do a right thing, a moral thing to care about somebody else. But then over time, obviously, it's like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. It just got so distorted that it's no longer that thing. But ironically, yeah. the root of it seems very similar in some ways, some people would say. I think I think that that may well be part of it. I think the other root of uh, religious thinking, and there are very many, and they go back sure. know, probably pre-recorded history, 
is more on the epistemology side. And I think there's something about, you know, as being an evolved animal with advanced cognitive capabilities, trying to understand the world, there's something deeply unsettling about yes. not knowing stuff, yes. right? And um, we evolved agency detection and we evolved to be paranoid about stuff going on and we picked up patterns of repetition. We didn't like uncertainty. We wanted to put stories forward that would explain things. We yes. like clear, reassuring stories. And so I think that was probably a, a, a rich For and sure. powerful driver too. But I'm sure there was something about, um, it's almost a lack of trust in innate yeah. human. It's the original uh, sin compassion Christianity. Compassion. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, you know, and I don't believe humans can be good by themselves. So let's have a boss that forces them to do it. And I think that's part of the sad thing, right, is that it, it disempowers humans, right? It says, look, you're... I think it's rude, right? It's, it's it's like saying I don't even trust you enough to be able yeah. to work out how to be not, good. Not to by, mention, I don't think yourself. it works as I think you've well, said. No. Like, yeah. it's, I, I think of it like a mathematical equation that you're trying to figure out, and you just can't figure it out, so you put a plug in. God is the plug that says this will just force it to work, yeah. but you haven't yeah. actually solved the equation. What you're bringing yeah. forth is remove the plug because that does us a disservice. It actually allows us to wander too many ways in the wrong direction. Figure out the equation the right way, and that'll actually get us to the place we want to be. Yeah. yeah. And right. I think it, it also gives me another going back to one of your earlier questions about how optimistic I am is um, that does give me some hope, right? Because in many of these situations, and I think we've seen this in the development of human ethics as well, when we think about human rights and fighting against racism and sexism and uh, homophobia and so on and casteism and mm. uh, and poverty. Right. Um, those efforts sometimes feel a bit like a sacrifice for the powerful but actually they normally help the powerful right so so resisting racism is good for the you know the white dudes like us right and 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 promoting feminism is good for the men like us right so in that human space one of the things that's helped to move some of those social justice movements along always incompletely is not just powerful people you know, deciding to be nice, right? It's also the fact that extending our moral scope more generously is good for us too, like even in a completely selfish context. Mm -hmm. And I think the same is increasingly true when we think about the non-human sentient space too, where even if someone refuses to extend any consideration or compassion to non-human animals whatsoever, if they only care about humans, just as an example, the argument to just transition to end analog culture is overwhelming, even in completely selfish human terms, right? And whether that's zoonosis, whether it's pollution of land and air, whether it's uh, incredible breadth of land usage and deforestation and biodiversity destruction, whether it's climate change through the three critical gases, whether it's through, you know, ethical knock-ons to labour practices and you know, the PTSD of people working in these industries, yeah. you know, the, the lists just go on, right? So even from, I think we can also, we don't just have to appeal to ethics and, you know, be a compassionate person and follow the logic. There are more and more actually quite selfish directed reasons that yeah. can push us in a positive way as well. And I don't want to be naive about that, right? Because sometimes there are still trade-offs and sacrifices people need to make, but quite often we find in intrahuman ethics and also in non-human animal sentiocentric ethics that there are massive overwhelming win-wins that are good for us even in a completely selfish sense yeah. so i think even someone who's much more cynical about mm -hmm. humans ability to be rational and compassionate we can still pull all of those you know more self-centered levers and make enormous progress yeah there's an interesting conversation maybe for next time we speak on that of 
if because I agree with that, there's there's a logical thread to follow, which says selfishness can get us to a better place. But if it's still rooted in selfishness, does it ultimately end in a bad place still? But we'll we'll save that. But yeah, there are risks you, there. Yeah, there's always risks, right? So let me ask one more. Maybe the 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 I'm sure you've gotten this before. The epitome of the skeptical question of this idea, right? You, you talked before about illusions, the ability for humans to create illusions, and I for me that's one of the greatest fears I have. It's why I'm so fascinated by philosophy and critical thinking and questioning. Because I'm always considering, like, what, what is the illusion? What is the thing I'm missing? What's my blind spot? What's the bias? In this, the obvious one I'm sure people bring up, and you mentioned it before, right? Somebody would say, well, if you truly believe in this, why haven't you sold all your possessions and, you know, just given everything to, to help? And I think there's a pretty simple explanation for that, which is like, well, you need to maintain a certain level to continue to give what you're giving. But even on a day-to-day -day basis, if somebody wants to be skeptical, and I'm, I'm, I'm using this just as an example, but somebody say, okay, you're not eating meat anymore. You're not eating eggs, dairy, any of that. But perhaps yeah. something in your apartment has been made. Like there's some comforts that you have in your life that are still causing suffering for some sentient being. Are you aware of that? And you just recognize and acknowledge like that's part of the process and the we have to move through. Do you think you still have blind spots where you're still somebody who is preaching this, but 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 really there's still aspects of it where you're still getting the benefits of causing suffering on sentient beings. And again, I obviously don't ask that to be accusatory. I ask it because it's the question that people are going to wonder to say, how real really is this? Also, because it allows you perhaps to empathize with those that still aren't where you are yet, where they think yeah. they're doing everything they could be doing, but they have blind spots. So a bit of a jumble there, but just curious how you think about that. It's really important. And it, it often comes through in the discourse because um when you're thinking about non-human animal ethics and particularly veganism as an example, um, when you go through that process of this, as I said, the sort of blink is falling away and you suddenly see this, you know, whether it's lab animals or animal agricultural fishing with, with this new light, the perspective of the victims, um, that can drive a very powerful emotional response, right? And an and outrage, uh, a horror, uh, even a frustration, even a sort of disgust with humanity writ large, right? And, mm -hmm. and there are plenty of dangers in there. And one of them is, as you've hinted at, that you imply that you've achieved some sort of moral perfection, right? And that, for example, veganism is perfection. Mm -hmm. It's the only thing that matters. If you're not vegan, you're evil. If you are vegan, you're perfect. And uh, and on we go. Right? And that happens in human social justice movements as well. Right? There's an implication that it's a binary choice. It's a yes, no. If you're on the wrong side, you're bad. And if you're on the right side, you're good. And I just think it's a dangerous way of thinking because this is about perfection in the same way as people who care about human ethics would agree that there's no such thing as perfection. Um, it is, you know, a journey we're on, we're learning more, we have our own blind spots, we're trying to do better. We all ch also choose our level of demandingness line as well. And I've, I've suggested quite a minimal level of demandingness that says we're just trying to avoid causing exploitation harm and suffering right i'm not even suggesting you sell everything and donate everything <laughs> to charity right um so there are different levels there um so we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good right just because we can't be perfect doesn't mean we should give up and it also doesn't mean that there are some quite clear lines we can draw because one of the dangers of saying well we're all on a journey nobody's perfect you know we're all doing what we can is that that can also be an excuse to do nothing right and just as in intrahuman ethics you know, on the one hand, if someone claimed to be perfect in their intrahuman ethics, you'd be pretty skeptical. But also if someone said, well, we're all on a journey, but they didn't actually go on a journey, they didn't actually make any changes, and really they're just using it as an excuse not to change, you can be pretty skeptical. So I think there are some pretty, you know, reasonably clear lines we can draw about the things we should, you know, try not to do and not do. Um, 
but always be open to going further. And you're, mm. you're, you're right. That's, that's partly of this epistemological commitment to using evidence and reason is that Im implies and embeds, uh, you know, a humility, mm. uh, a doubt in our own reasoning, a doubt in our own evidence and a skepticism about our own ability to think critically. That means we, we have to be aware of our own biases and we're never going to get it right. We just need to keep working. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know if that's an answer. Yes, it, it's a journey. Yes, nobody's perfect. We're all aspiring to do better, but you know, let's let's genuinely try and do that, not use it as an excuse for just falling back into our yeah, believing what we what we want to believe. Yeah, and you said you said a magic word that when it comes whenever it comes up, it should come up in every conversation. I personally believe whenever it does, it, it it's like a shock to me of like, yep, that's it. Humility to me, humility is at the base of so much of this because to to employ reason, to develop compassion, to to like all, so much of it is rooted in humility to just acknowledge that. It's not just about us, obviously, but also the humility from a logical perspective to say, I don't know for sure. I'm yeah. not actually, I don't actually have all the answers. Like the dogmatism, all that, all that starts to wipe away when you when you have humility. And I think that goes back to where we were before. Humility can be very hard for some humans to practice um, for various reasons, right? Things that are in us. But Jamie, I have to and, say, I mean- I, And, and yeah. humility itself can also become an excuse, right? If you take it too far. True. Because- while we should be humble, right? I, I think it, you know humility and doubt is absolutely central to a scientific way of understanding and to a naturalistic way of understanding. Because without doubt, why would we keep going to try and find out more? And why would we listen to new evidence? Right? Some people do take humility too far, right? and they take humility so far they say, "Well, you know, I just don't know. But, you know, I really don't know." Right? Who knows if pigs are sentient? Right? Maybe they don't experience anything at all. I'm just super humble. Right? I just don't believe anything. And and you can sort of use, use that as a sort of backing away and a sort of passivity and a fatalism that I think is also dangerous too. We can be humble, but we also need to act in the world. And to act in the world, we need to have, if not perfect beliefs, at least credences, right? Prob probabilistic, provisional, prudent credences that we can use to take decisions. And that's, you know, and we, and we can do that well, I think. Yeah, um, such a good clarification because so many people hear that and they think, oh, so you never want to make a decision. You're just going to be yeah. indecisive. We, I think exactly as you just said, we need to make decisions. We need to take action, but do it with a level of humility that says this may be wrong and I'm open and I'm actively looking to see if it is wrong. Is this causing suffering in some way? And that's what I love so much about this concept and this conversation. I mean, it's not, it's not just, not that it shouldn't be, right? Let me be clear on this. Like, it's not just feel good, compassion. Not that there's a lot of reason that we shouldn't practice that for all the obvious reasons, but that that balance with reason, with um, rationality, with trying to understand and doubt and questioning, to me, those are the two most important things you can bring together. Um, and I think, as you've alluded throughout this, it doesn't make it a magic fix. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't mean, okay, now we have the blueprint. Everybody just go and do it. It is a journey. There is room for subjectivity. There is a lot of different interpretations from this. But what I love about what you said is that if we if we start with that foundational baseline of let's not cause needless suffering, we probably still will. Let's be humble enough to acknowledge that we will. But let's be aware of that. Let's be actively trying to minimize it. To me, that's got to be some of the best we can do. So I think it's super interesting. I hope more people hear about this and explore it. It may not be for everybody. People may have questions, but I think even in that questioning process, they'll be better off in thinking through this and understanding it. So I think the work you're doing is super important and I, I appreciate you for doing it. Thank you, Terry. Yeah. And I'd love to continue the conversation too. I would all too. Of our, all of our groups and uh, our forums online, if anyone just searches for, the word's a bit clunky, but sentient with ism on the end if you search for that anywhere you'll find it and the groups are open to anyone interested right there's no club there's no membership there's no rules it's just to continue the conversation and you know 
be open about it. So yeah, I'd love to. That's awesome. I will definitely you put the link your, uh, your listeners. For sure. For sure. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have an awesome rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Take care. Hey, thanks a ton for listening to the episode. Um, I really do appreciate everybody that listens. And I think it's super cool that people want to hear conversations like this. They want to hear us talk about values and different perspectives and really just philosophical thinking. Um, I'm kind of on this mission or journey to bring philosophy back to the forefront, maybe even make philosophy cool again, because I just think there's so much value in thinking about our thinking, questioning and challenging ourselves more, pondering these big picture questions about life. Um, so in that spirit, I'm trying to expand that mission a little bit, and I created a Patreon account um, that would be awesome if you check out. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, it's pretty simple, though. It's patreon.com slash what's the value. And the idea is for people that maybe want to learn more about philosophy, dip their toe in it a little bit, or maybe you already love it and just want to get more of it, um, check it out because there's kind of a tier for everybody, whether you just want to get like a quick philosophical video or a thought of the day. Um, maybe you want to email or text me some questions and get some thoughtful philosophical responses. Or if you want to have a live one-on-one -on -one chat over Zoom, um, we're even doing group discussions where we kind of do group philosophical debates and discussions and ponder some of those big questions. So check it out, see if it's something you might be interested in. Uh, as I said, I just love to bring more philosophy into our lives and I thought this might be a cool way to do it. Um, whether that's your thing or not, and you're into Patreon or not, I really do appreciate a ton that you listen and check out these episodes. So I appreciate it greatly and I hope you have an awesome day.